you have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, if you're visiting with us or haven't been here in a while, we've been working through the Gospel of John, but on Reformation Sunday, back at the end of October, we decided to do a little series that I've entitled Lazarus and the Tulip. Lazarus and the Tulip. And so we're going to kind of jump and springboard from our main text in John 11, verses 38 through 44, and then we'll explain to you kind of why we've entitled the message that way, Lazarus and the Tulip. And so starting in verse 38 of John 11, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning. We thank you that you are Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you that you are him who created us and saved us all by grace. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we look at this message's content from John 11 and other verses that we'll look at, that you would greatly encourage us with the truth of the gospel this day, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I already mentioned, over the last several weeks, we've been looking at a little series on the Protestant Reformation. And this was a religious revolution that began in the Western Church of the 16th century. The Reformation's greatest leaders undoubtedly were Martin Luther and John Calvin. However, the Reformation had its underpinnings in the reformers of the medieval church, such as St. Francis of Assisi, John Wycliffe, who was the first to translate the Bible into English, and John Huss, who was known for his martyrdom about 100 years before the Reformation began. Over the centuries leading up to the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church had become deeply involved in the political life of Western Europe. The carte blanche power of the Pope, along with the Church's increase in power and wealth, all contributed to the corrections that the Reformation sought to bring about. Abuses such as the sale of indulgences and other charges of corruption undermined the Roman Catholic Church's spiritual authority. And all of this triggered Martin Luther, a new convert, to post 95 theses on the door of the Castle, Bur the Castle uh, Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Martin Luther claimed that what distinguished him from other reformers was while they attacked the corruption of life of the church, he went to the theological root of the problem, the perversion of the church's doctrine of redemption and grace. This, of course, led to the five solas of Christ alone, 
Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, all done to the glory of God alone. And these five solas of the 16th century are what the doctrines of grace of the 17th century were all built on. About a hundred years after the Reformation began in 1517, it was the Synod of Dort, which was held in 1618 and 1619, that resulted in a gathering of theologians and the teaching of TULIP began. TULIP stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. And in our series on Lazarus and the tulip, we've been looking at one of each one of these five grand doctrines of grace, and we've been seeing how they're clearly taught in the Bible, that these doctrines of grace, or tulip, did not begin with the Reformation, but they began with the character of God. They began in the teaching of the Old and New Testament. And I've been trying to demonstrate to you throughout the Gospel of John, we're pulling the thread of these five doctrines as we see them so clearly taught in this Gospel. And then we've been illustrating each one of these five doctrines of grace by looking at the life and the death and the resurrection of Lazarus. I think it's a great picture for us to understand these five doctrines. And so let me remind you that there are a lot of miracles in the Bible. But in the Gospel of John, there are seven specific signs or wonders that were recorded for a specific purpose. A sign is a miracle, but it's more than a miracle. A sign is a pointer pointing specifically to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he came to provide salvation for all who would repent and believe. All seven signs in the Gospel of John point to that end. And what we're learning is that this very last of the seven signs is the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. It happened literally a week and a few days before Jesus himself would be crucified. And therefore, I've made the statement that I believe that this miracle is the crowning point of Jesus's ministry. It began with turning the water into wine. It ends with raising Lazarus from the dead. And each one of these miracles point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and that he has come to bring transformation into the heart of a sinner to make that individual be born again. This miracle, this sign, foreshadows Jesus' own death and his own resurrection. This raising of Lazarus from the dead also foreshadows the salvation of each and every Christian. And be encouraged this morning, church, that if Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead after he had been there for four days, then Jesus can raise anyone from the dead. Jesus can impart spiritual life to anyone. That's encouraging to me this morning because that means that Jesus can save your mom in your dad. Jesus can save that son or daughter that you've been praying for for years. Jesus could save your aunt or your uncle if they don't know Christ. Jesus can save your cousins, first, second, and third, no matter how many you have, and all the ones that have been once removed, right? Jesus can save anybody. He can save your teacher. He can save your boss. He can save your student. He can save your doctor and your dentist and your insurance agent. We're talking about the grace of God and salvation. He can save your neighbor. He can save your waiter or your waitress. He can save the person that you're sitting next to on your next flight. There are no limits with Christ. 
There is nothing that he cannot do. There are no restraints on his grace. There is no person that Jesus cannot save. And so today, we're going to look at the I in that acronym TULIP, that acrostic TULIP. The I is irresistible grace. Now, I've been looking at this same template of an outline. So first, we'll look at how to understand this doctrine of irresistible grace. We've defined it for you here with a couple of sentences, so you can fill in those blanks if you like. But irresistible grace refers to the biblical truth that whatever God decrees to happen will inevitably come to pass even the salvation of un- individuals. What we're saying is God's sovereign over everything. God has his decrees. He orchestrates. He ordains all things. And in irresistible grace, we're saying especially the salvation of individual. He decrees that. Second sentence, the Holy Spirit will work in the lives of the elect so that they will want to come to Christ and believe in his name. What we're saying here is that God doesn't drag anybody into heaven kicking and screaming. He changes your desire, and he causes you to want to come to Jesus. You see his glory, you see his grace, and you want to come. This means essentially that the divine operation called rebirth and regeneration is a decree of God, and it's a work of God. In fact, theologians call this the idea of monergism. Monergism, mono, means one. The idea of jism is working, one working. It means that the work of regeneration in the human heart is something that God does by his power alone. So if anybody's saved today, we're saying that's 100% God. It is not 50% his power and 50% your power. It is not 99% God's power and 1% your power. If you add anything to the grace of God and salvation, it's no longer grace, but it's a work that you do to be saved. And my friends, that is heresy. We do not believe in salvation by works, even by 1%. We believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for we know that it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In addition... When God exercises this grace in the soul, he brings about the effect that he intended to bring about. When God created you, he brought you into existence. You did not help him. You did not help him create the world, and you did not help him create your own body. He brought you into existence. It was his sovereign work that brought you to life biologically. Likewise, in his work of salvation, it's his alone. He brings you to the state of rebirth. He brings you into a state of a renewed creation. So we call this all irresistible grace. It's grace that works in you. It's a grace that changes you. It's a grace that brings about what God wants it to bring about. And if indeed we are dead in our trespasses, and if indeed before salvation our wills were captive to the lust of our flesh then we need to be liberated from our flesh and liberated from our bondage in order to be saved. And the final analysis in this is that it must be something that God does in us and for us and not something that we in any way do for ourselves. This is the doctrine of irresistible grace. It's the fact, as Colossians 2.13 says, and you 
who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. Now that's the key of what we're talking about. Grace is not you doing it. It's God making you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses. The, the, the fact that God made us alive, even though we were dead, is all grace. When God draws a sinner, he changes a sinner. And that sinner who was made alive begins rejoicing in the gospel of grace. They don't come kicking and screaming into heaven. They come because they've been amazed by his grace. They've been drawn by his grace. They've been changed by grace. Listen to Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, that would be when they heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So what we're saying here in this verse, what the Bible says, is if you've been appointed to eternal life, that could be a reference to election, then you may have thought that you could put off God's call for a season, and even though you think you can resist, eventually God will crush your pride, convict your heart, and cause you to want to be born again all by grace. And you will come rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Nobody comes to Christ reluctantly. Nobody comes to Christ with a complaining spirit or they're not genuinely coming. When you come to Christ, you abandon it all and you come to him and we're saying that the Bible teaches that's all grace. I like to think of it this way. We could say that unconditional election is a work of the Father. Limited atonement is the work of the Son. But irresistible grace is a work of the Holy Spirit. We see here that triune effect of our God in saving sinners. The Father elects his own from eternity past, the Son atones for the sins of the elect, and the Spirit regenerates those who have been called by God. And this work of our regeneration is what we are referring to here as irresistible grace. Now, some theologians can see the challenge of calling it irresistible grace because I've already alluded to the fact that for a season it feels like we can resist. And so some theologians say, no, nah, let's don't call it irresistible grace. Let's call it effectious grace. One such theologian would be James Montgomery Boyce, the late pastor many years ago went to be with the Lord from 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He used to say this, quote, when God calls us to faith in Christ Jesus, he calls us effectively, succeeding in his purpose to save us. The grace for God's calling is overwhelmingly efficacious. So what he's saying in that quote is this means that God's grace always takes effect in the one of his choosing. The elect cannot and would not want to resist the call of God. The problem with our human thinking is that we think we can resist anything, but we can't. You really can't resist anything. When you were a sinner, you couldn't resist your sin. You were addicted to sin. You were living out your life according to your sinful nature. You did what you wanted. You were enslaved to your sin, and there was no resisting it, no matter how hard you tried. Who in here today was able to put off sin before you met Christ? Nobody, because you could not resist it. Sin was irresistible to you. But now, 
In Christ, we have a new master. And in Christ, we have a new nature. And in Christ, we have new desires to carry out the power of following and obeying Jesus. And he provides the new nature. He provides the new power. He provides it all. And he gives you a desire to follow and obey Jesus Christ. He gives you the ability to do what you used to not be able to do because if you've been regenerated, you're now saved. And what I'm saying is you can't really resist that. Now, I've told you before that when I was a kid, I hated broccoli, right? Remember, I've told you this a couple of times. I resisted broccoli. I avoided broccoli whenever I could. But when I became a man, something changed in me. (laughs) Something changed in the way I started thinking about broccoli. I began to learn that broccoli's not bad for me, but it's good for me. It's really good for me. It's a good source of vitamin A and vitamin C and vitamin E and vitamin K and yes, even vitamin B6. I became aware of the fact that broccoli is also a good source of iron, magnesium, phosphorus, folate, potassium, and selenium. Broccoli is a cruciferous vegetable in the family with Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, and cabbage. Who's getting hungry? You're like, oh yeah, baby, bring it on. Cruciferous veggies, that's what we're having for lunch today, right? You know, these vegetables are a great source of fiber, and they contain anti-cancer properties, so broccoli is now welcome at my table anytime. Do you hear what I'm saying to you this morning? I now actually like broccoli. I used to be able to resist it, and now I just can't. I have to have my broccoli. You may think that you can resist grace for a season, but if you're called by God, then you will be regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and when you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, your desires change. Do you understand what we're saying? When Jesus changes your desires, you want more of him, not less of him. You want to follow him, not run from him. You want to actually obey him. You come running into his arms. Irresistible grace does not force you to come to God against your will. Irresistible grace transforms your will because you now have a new heart and a new desire. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way, quote, All those whom God has predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call them to grace and salvation, thus renewing their wills. And by his almighty, almighty power, he is effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely being made willing by his grace. Did you hear the last part of that confession? It says, hey, they come, he effectually draws us, and you come willingly, made willing by his grace. Martin Luther had that same conviction when he wrote, quote, when God works in us, the will is changed under the sweet influence of the Spirit of God. What Luther is saying is God's grace and his power and his word and his work is so sweet. It's so attractive that it changes your want to. So God doesn't make you come against your will. He changes your will. 
And as we look further into irresistible grace, another way to describe it is that effectual call of God. The effectual call of God means that those whom God elects from eternity past, he will effectually call them out of darkness and into life. And so sometimes people ask the question, well, what if he calls somebody and they don't come? Like, how does that work? And so that's why I want to define for you, and you see the next part there in your outline, two kinds of calls. There are two different kinds of calls in the Bible. The first is what we call a general call, a general call. This is an external, universal call for all people to come to Christ. This would be like the general inviting that Christ gives us in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Turn there with me if you will, and I'm going to show you the general call and the specific call from Scripture. Here first, let's note a general call extended by Jesus himself in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Here's what the general call is. Remember, it's external and it's universal, but Jesus says this. You know this verse, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We see an open-ended call. We see a call here for everybody to come. We see an open invitation where Jesus says, come to me all who labor, and I will give you rest. Now turn to John seven thirty-seven. We see Jesus give another general call. In John 7, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is another example of a general call. Jesus is there at the feast. There are believers and unbelievers alike, and he just issues this, this general invitation. If anybody out there is thirsty, anybody, let him come to me and drink. One more place where we see the general call is Acts. Turn to Acts 17, verse 30. Paul in writing, or excuse me, Luke, writing the book of Acts, says this, Acts 17, 30, the times of ignorance, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It's a general call. Who's it for? All people everywhere. And so to, to also illustrate this general call, I think Jesus taught a parable. Remember when he talked about the man who prepared a great banquet and he invited many guests, and when the feast was all prepared, he sent his servants out with the invitation, come, for everything is now ready. But the guests that were invited began to make excuses. Remember that? One said, I just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Still a third replied, I just got married, so I can't come. What is that? It's a general call for people to come, but some of them did not come. So what we're saying is this, Jesus experienced what it's like to issue a general call without having everybody respond to that general call. You know why? Because the general call is a resistible grace. It was never intended to save every individual. There will always be those that God has passed over and therefore they will die in their sins. And they have resisted to the end because there was never a specific call placed upon their lives. And these unbelievers are unrepentant sinners and they will die in their sin for the wages of sin is death. And they will receive their due. That is the general call. But the specific call is something entirely different. The specific call, as you see it there in your outline, is an internal 
versus external, and it's an effectual versus universal call for the elect, which not only issues the invitation, but here's the key, it provides the willingness and the ability to respond. This effectual call always takes effect in the individual that it is placed upon. The effectual call is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a person. The effectual call replaces a stone-cold heart and replaces it with a heart of flesh. The effectual call is like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces. The effectual call overpowers death itself to bring about new life. This is exactly what Jesus teaches in John 10. Turn there with me, if you will. John 10, verses 3 and 4, we see not a general call by the Lord Jesus in this passage, but we see this specific effectual call of our Lord in John 10, verses 3 and 4. Jesus says this, to him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. The general call does not always accomplish what it was set out to do, but the specific call does. And in John 10, we see a specific call of Jesus calling not everybody, but calling his sheep. He calls every man and every woman that he calls, and he will affect them in such a way that his will will always be accomplished, and whatever he set out to do will be accomplished because our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. We have to understand that this is why God says through the prophet Isaiah 55, 10, and 11, tell me that you haven't heard this verse that also teaches, I believe, the effectual call for the, as the rain and the snow came down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth it shall not return to me empty but it will accomplish that for which I uh, it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it I mean here's a clear verse in Isaiah 55 say look God's word goes out it does not return what void it doesn't come back empty it always accomplishes its work this is the effectual calling of God God has a perfect record a hundred people out of a hundred people whom God calls to salvation will be saved. God never loses a fight. God never loses a ball game. God never has to sweat it out. Yesterday, I was sweating it out, watching an important football game to me, and my team lost. And that's okay, because my God is still in the heavens, and he still reigns. And who cares about football anyway? Right? I don't need to care so much, right? But I sweat it out. Well, guess what? That's not how this works. God's not sweating it out in some dualistic fight between him and the devil or him and man's will. That's not what's going on. He spoke creation into existence and it happened. The earth is his footstool. His arm is not too short to save anybody. Our God is omnipresent, he's omniscient, and he's omnipotent. And that's why Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, in that context, he is talking about Israel having a future, 
with them in Romans 11, but the same principle applies, the calling of God, it's irrevocable. God's plans will not be overturned. God's people will not ultimately resist him. God's purposes will not be thwarted. This is God's irresistible grace. This is the effectual calling of God. Now, one more thing. When we talk about irresistible grace or the effectual calling of God, we should also beware that this calling is a part of what we call the golden chain of redemption. Please turn one more time to Romans 8, 29 and 30, so you can see again the importance of this text showing us the links in the chain all the way from eternity past to eternity future. In Romans 8, 29 and 30, it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, that would be the effectual calling, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What do these two verses tell us? First he foreknew, then he predestined, then he called, then he justified, and then he glorified. These verses include five links to this chain But there are more. There are more than just five links. Theologians call this whole discussion, by the way, the Ordo Salutis. That's Latin for the order of salvation. And so after taking some time to study Reformed doctrine on the Reformation in the Bible, I would say that the Reformed view pretty much lines up in the same place. And the Reformed understanding of the order of salvation, I've listed for you there in your outline, just so you can take a quick look at it. The order of salvation or the Ordo Salutis, number one, foreknowledge. Number two, predestination. Number three, election. Number four, that's our topic for this morning, the effectual calling or the irresistible grace of God. Number five, regeneration. Number six, conversion, which includes repentance and faith. Number seven, justification. Number eight, adoption. Number nine, sanctification, which is also the perseverance of the saints. We'll talk about it next week. And number 10, glorification. Now, here's what I'd like to say. You see the list of 10 there? Some of those can be moved around, but in a Reformed view, they're in a very specific order. And I would say it this way. The first three happened before the foundation of the world. So the foreknowledge of God, God predestining his own and electing his own all happened in eternity past before, I would say, before creation. Numbers four through nine happen in your lifetime. This is God now executing his decree by saving you in real time as a human being. Number 10 happens when you die or when Jesus comes back. And I just wanted you to see this so that you can see that this effectual calling or this irresistible grace takes effect in you as the initial work of God in your lifetime to call you to himself. And then he regenerates you by the Holy Spirit's power. And after this, you are able, as a born-again believer, to repent and to believe all by grace. And at this point, there is a declaration of your justification. And then you are adopted into the family of God with all of its blessings and all of its benefits. And then you enter into the sanctification, that progressive part of your Christian walk and growth. And then glorification is something that we have to look forward to when we get to heaven. 
It's all a gift of God. The only thing that you have anything to do with in 1 through 10 is number 9, your sanctification. We call that a synergistic work. So salvation is monergistic. It's all God, not of you, because it's by grace, not by works, lest any man should boast. But sanctification is synergistic. It's Christ in you. It's you abiding in him and him dwelling in you. It's his strength and your strength helping you walk with Jesus. This is the only one in the list of 10 that's a process. It requires you putting off the deeds of the flesh and setting your mind on things above where Christ is. And because grace is irresistible and has changed you, you now can resist the devil and walk obediently to the Lord. The beauty is because of grace, you can now live in that grace and you can do what James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Like you have the ability to be an overcomer in Christ. And so now that we have a, a better understanding of irresistible grace in saving you, let's look at a few places where we see this taught in the Gospel of John, right? How is it taught in the Gospel of John? Number one, irresistible grace is a gift of the Spirit. Turn with me, if you will, to John 3, 3 through 6. And we're saying this grace, this irresistible grace, is a gift of the Spirit. John 3, verse 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, in this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus, we're seeing that Jesus is saying that in order to be a Christian, in order to enter into the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus realizes, but that's impossible. How can you take a grown man and cause him to be born again? That's impossible. That's like asking an Ethiopian to change the color of his skin as the Bible says, or a leopard to change his spots. Those references are in Isaiah, right? How can salt water and fresh water flow from the same stream? These things are all impossible with man, but they are not impossible with God. Jesus is saying it's not impossible to be born again. In fact, we've already read in Luke 1.37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Jesus is saying to be born again, you must be born of water and the Spirit. That means you must be washed by the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit, and you must be regenerated by Him. The Holy Spirit removes your sin, and He regenerates your dead soul. And when you are born of the Spirit, you will spiritually live forever in the kingdom of God. This is all an irresistible grace given by the Spirit of God. I mean, the wind knows not where it blows and where it comes from, as the rest of that John 3 passage says. We don't fully understand it. It just, God just does what he does. He takes the wind and he blows it wherever he wants. And that means when somebody gets saved, I don't understand why all of a sudden he blows irresistible grace over the heart of one and not another, but I know he does it because that's what the Bible teaches us. We have to understand here that Lazarus experienced this gift. Every true Christian has received this gift. Lazarus did not make himself die, and he did not make himself come alive again. 
This was a gift of the Spirit. And no one understands why God saves some and not others. But what we do know is that he who is born of the Spirit is spirit, and he who is born of the flesh is flesh. And Lazarus did the impossible when he came out of the tomb. But it wasn't his work or his doing. It was the spirit of the living God working through the miracle working power of Jesus Christ that caused Lazarus to be made alive and to walk out of that grave. And my friends, Lazarus could not resist it, nor did he want to, because he was changed by this gift of grace that God wrought in his heart. And so we learn in the Gospel of John, that irresistible grace is not only a gift, but number two, it's the result of Jesus's determination. Irresistible grace is the result of Jesus's determination. Please turn with me to John 6, verses 38 and 39. Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John 18, 9 also says, of those whom you gave me, I lost not one. So what we're reading in these verses is that Jesus does all that he sets his mind to. Jesus will accomplish all that God sent him to do. Jesus came to this earth on a mission, and that mission was to do the will of him who sent him. And Jesus will lose nothing of all that God has given to him. And Jesus will raise up every person whom God has elected from eternity past. And not one person will be able to resist the will of God. With his divine determination, Jesus will save all of those who have been given to him by the Father. And when Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus, he did not summon him, he subpoenaed him. A summons is a bidding that you come, while a subpoena is a court order compelling you to come. Please note that Jesus did not invite Lazarus out of the grave, he commanded him out of the grave. Jesus wasn't playing phone tag. He wasn't texting Lazarus. He didn't send him an email. He wasn't waiting on Lazarus to respond. Jesus just gave Lazarus a direct order, come forth. And of course, Lazarus couldn't come on his own. And so Jesus issued the order and he provided the power. Jesus gave the command and he enabled the response at the same time. Jesus actually gave three commands at the tomb. Take away the stone, Lazarus come out, and unbind him and let him go. And all three commands were obeyed instantly because God gave the grace for their implementation. This was God's decree. It would not be changed. What sort of man could have resisted these instructions? No one can resist the power and the decree of God. And just as God decrees events happen on earth, he decrees the salvation of each and every person, and you cannot resist it. Now, another thing that I believe John's gospel makes clear about irresistible grace, number three, irresistible grace, is God dragging you and drawing you. Please turn to John 6, 44 and 45. In this text, 
we learn something very important about the nature of irresistible grace, and that is this, John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, a year or so ago, we spent a long time in John 6. We spent some time on this word, the word draw, in John 6, And the word draw is assumed by most people in our time to mean woo. And they think, well, God drew him, he woo him. But that's actually a wrong lexical assumption. The word draw does not mean woo. It literally means to drag. It means to drag or to pull by force. It means to move an object from one area to another. And my friends, the only way that can happen is by a work being done in that person. It's not a person who works, it's a person who's worked upon. And so I think that our understanding of this verse has been confused by a lot of Christians because they equate the analogy of God drawing sinners like flies are drawn to honey. And we think that if we just put something out there that's so beautiful or so tasty, people will just come. But remember, they, they can't come. They're dead. You could put honey out at the tomb of Lazarus, and he's not coming out. I talked last week about you could put a million dollars out there, and he's still not coming out because he's dead. And so the word draw doesn't mean draw in the way that we understand it. The word draw actually means dragged. That's what it means. That's, that's how it's used to Jesus in the fishing nets. He dragged the nets to shore. That's how it's used in several places in the Bible. And so when R.C. Sproul talks about how we don't, you know, we don't stand up at the top of a well and woo the water out, you know, stand at the top of the well and look down and say, here, water, water. Hey, water, come on up. Come on. You can do it. Right? No, no, you have to dip something down in there. You dip a bucket down in there. And you, some people would say draw, but I would say you're actually dragging it out with a rope because it's not wooing, it's dragging that water up the well, out of the water, and you drag that water. And let me assure you, the water is not resisting, but it is coming up without a fight. And you may resist God's call for you to come to him for a moment or for a year or for many years. But if God has elected you from eternity past, he will bring you into an understanding of your need for Christ. And you will come, not reluctantly, but willing you. Willing, willingly, you come. God does not woo you and then leave it up to you. I mean, what would happen if Jesus came to the the tomb of Lazarus and say, hey, Lazarus, I'm bidding you to come out if you want to. And then he just waited. Or what if he commanded it as he did? And then all of a sudden we hear crickets in the cave. And then Jesus is like, oh my goodness, I guess he didn't want to come up. Well, if Lazarus doesn't want to come up from the dead, then I guess he'll just stay dead. That's not how the story goes. Jesus just walks up with a commanding presence. Lazarus, come forth. And something happened in an instant, in that moment, every sinew and every fiber and every ounce of being in that person, Lazarus, became alive again. And he came out, not reluctantly, trust me, he wanted to come out. He was ready to come. And once you see the love Christ has for you, you will want to come as well. Please understand 
that God does not drag anyone kicking and screaming to heaven. He simply changes your want to. So as he's dragging you, you're actually saying, I'm a coming. He's a dragging and you're a coming and you're going to be regenerated and given a new heart with God. This is what irresistible grace is all about. I believe that to be drawn is to be dragged. And how did this work with Lazarus? Again, I would say that Lazarus did not come out of the grave against his will. Lazarus did not come out of the grave kicking and screaming. Lazarus came out of the grave willingly and gratefully. A dead man in his impotence cannot resist the living God and his omnipotence. Jesus did not woo Lazarus out. He spiritually dragged him out. Jesus didn't ask for permission. He fulfilled his God-given mission. There was no discussion here. There was a direction that was given and a direction that was taken gladly. And I would say to you this morning that if you feel like the hounds of heaven are chasing you today, then run no further. If you feel like God's got your number, then take your fingers out of your ears and look at him with your face and realize that he loves you and he sent Christ to die for you, why try to resist anymore? You might as well give up now. You might as well give in today and abandon your sin and be made alive. If you hear the voice of Jesus crying out to you through his word today, come to him and he will not cast you out. Make that general call a specific call in a sense because when Jesus has his hand on you, he will win that battle every time. Fight it no longer, for you cannot resist the will of God. Now our fourth truth about irresistible grace in the Gospel of John is this. Number four, irresistible grace is God the Father making himself known to you through the Gospel. He makes himself known to us through the gospel. That's part of the irresistible grace of God. In fact, look at John 15, 13 through 15, where we read, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, he says, because servants do not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And what I want you to see in this passage is there in verse 15 at the end, he says that he has made it known to you. And what is he talking about in the context of that verse? He's talking about the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the fact that God is holy, man is a sinner, but Jesus came to die for sinners. And you must repent and believe, but you cannot unless God makes it known to you. And the way that God makes it known to you is through the preaching of the gospel and the revelation of the gospel. And it's not just about facts in your head. It's about a work in your heart. And the way that work happens is the general call goes out. It goes out here every Sunday. I call people to come out of darkness and into light. And every day in your home, your Christian mom and dad are calling you to repent and to believe. And that's all just a general call. And then somewhere along the way, the efficacious call of God, the specific gospel call begins to work in your life. And it begins to, God places his finger on your soul. And he begins to turn your will away from sin and it turns you onto him. And Jesus is saying in this passage, you used to be a slave, but now you're a friend. You used to be busy doing whatever it is you do. 
But when Jesus called you, he made you a friend. He brought you into a relationship that goes beyond an external adherence to the gospel, and he brought you into an intimate relationship where you are now his friend. There is no greater love than this, that if you are in Christ today, Jesus laid down his life for you. He gave the ultimate sacrifice. He paid for your sins in full. He brought you out of slavery and into the family of God. Jesus was a friend of Lazarus. Jesus wept for Lazarus. Jesus cares for his friends. And so when Lazarus needed Jesus the most, he did the most loving thing for him. And if you remember, that was allowing him to die. Remember, we spent some time saying, Mary and Martha sent to Jesus, Lazarus is sick, and he waited a few more days. And by the time he got there, Lazarus has been in the dead and in the grave four days, and I'm telling you, that was Jesus' best. And you say, well, what do you mean that's Jesus' best? Shouldn't he have came and healed him? No, because that wasn't Jesus' desire. It wasn't his decree, and it's not what he did. What he did is he decided to come a little later. Why? So that people could see something brand new. They had seen miracles. They had even witnessed resurrections. I told you all the other resurrections were done same day. But this is a new kind of a resurrection. Nobody, and I mean nobody, had been in the grave for four days where their flesh had started that process of putrefaction. And because Lazarus was Jesus' friend, Jesus honored him by giving Lazarus this special privilege. I mean, no one else on earth could ever say, I was dead for four days. And I came back to life. No one else could ever say my flesh was rotting and maggots were feasting on my body. But I'm back. And I'm back because Jesus made me alive. Jesus revealed his power in a way that no one had ever seen before. And spiritually speaking, the same could happen to you. Just when you think you've lost all hope, just when things couldn't seem to get worse, right as you reach the end of your rope and you drop the rope and you let go, you run out of your strength and you're falling into a dismal abyss, Jesus is there to catch you. Jesus is there to make himself known to you. Jesus is there to call you his friend. Jesus laid down his life for you, and he has shown you a greater love and a greater friendship than you can ever imagine. And this is irresistible grace. When that's revealed to you, nobody turns from that. Nobody turns their back to that. Not if God opens your heart and your mind to see it, you just come because you've been changed. And one final truth about irresistible grace in the Gospel of John, number five, irresistible grace is believing without seeing. It's believing without seeing. You remember doubting Thomas, who doubted the risen Christ, and then Jesus said, put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand here and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Jesus answered him and, or said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Here, Jesus is teaching us an important aspect of faith. Some believe because they have seen. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet they still believe. Either way, faith is a gift. Faith is given to those who see and faith can be given to those who don't see. And what I'm saying is, thank God, irresistible grace is not based on seeing. Because if it was based on seeing, all of us in this room have never seen the risen Christ in the flesh. But because grace is a gift, 
it causes you to see with spiritual eyes. Irresistible grace is God granting you the faith to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And you must believe that today to be saved, that he was fully God and fully man. You must believe that Jesus lived a perfect life. You must believe that he died on a cross. And you must believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. You must believe that he did that for you. And he did that to change you. And he did that to save you. And he did that to forgive you of all of your sins and wash them away. And Lazarus was made alive not by seeing Christ physically. How did irresistible grace touch Lazarus? It wasn't by seeing because he didn't see Christ until he had already been made what? Alive. He's made alive. Then he saw Christ. He didn't see Christ first because he was dead. But because Christ made him alive, not by seeing, but by the faith that God wrought in his heart, he was made alive in response to this irresistible grace. I mean, how could a dead man say no to the king of the universe? How could a dead man say no to the Lord of life? How could a dead man stay dead when Jesus caused him to be made alive? And so how is it illustrated in the life and resurrection of Lazarus? You see those blanks there, I already filled them in for you. Jesus effectually called Lazarus out of the grave. There was no general call there. That was an effectual call that Jesus did. Lazarus came out willingly. He did not come out dragging his feet and saying, I wish you'd have just left me in the grave. He was happy to come out of the grave. We can make full assumption that's true. Number three, the grace that saves you is also a grace that sanctifies you. The result of irresistible grace is salvation and sanctification. It leads right into your walk with Christ. Harry Ironside, a great Bible teacher who was the pastor for a while at Moody Church in Chicago from 1929 to 1948, told a great story about an older Christian who was asked to give his testimony. He told how God had sought him and found him and how God loved him and called him and saved him. He told the story of how God delivered him and cleansed him and healed him, a great witness to the grace and the power and the glory of God. And after the meeting, a rather legalistic Christian took him aside and criticized his testimony as some Christians like to do. And he said, I appreciated all you said about what God did for you, but you didn't mention anything about your part in it. Salvation is really part us and part God, don't you think? You should have mentioned something about your part. Oh, yes, the older Christian said. I apologize for that. I really should have said something about my part. My part was running away. His part was running after me until he caught me. That's a beautiful picture of irresistible grace. We may think we're running, but God chases down all of his elect and he transforms your heart as he reveals his grace and his glory and his love for you and you come being drawn and dragged together because you want to be his child. You enter into his presence. He will glorify you at the completion of his plan because his irresistible and affectionate grace calls you out of darkness and into life. And this is because Jesus loves you. He will raise you from the dead. And there should be really no resistance to that kind of call, the effectual, irresistible call of God. If he's placing that on your life at this moment, I invite you to come 
You're not being summoned today. You're being subpoenaed by the grace of God that you would come to saving faith in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning, the opportunity to spend a little time studying the irresistible grace, the amazing grace, the efficacious grace of our Lord. We thank you that it's your work and not ours. We thank you that you were unfair in the sense that you would save us, though we deserve death and we deserve judgment. And yet you set your affection upon us. You saved us all by grace. Yes, we responded, but that's a gift of you. It's a gift of your love and your kindness that led us to repentance. And we want to give all glory to you today for your irresistible and amazing grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.